This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here on time, even if I'm not, if I was not. <laughs> Just been running a little behind. Um, it's good to see you here. Did you have a good day yesterday in various, the various uh, committees, I mean, not committees, but seminars you've gone to and the plenaries? Um, do you think that the Lord is blessing you? Um, good, good. I'm glad to hear it. How many of you, I'm just curious, how many of you are, have come to GYCs before? I imagine most of you probably have. Uh, and how many are, is this the first time for you? Uh, well, half of this uh, crowd. I imagine that perhaps you are closer to this area. You live in Texas, and this is one of the reasons why it made it easier for you to be here. So, um, because we have... How many of you are new? In other words, you weren't here yesterday for either one of the two. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit, because I've been working with assumptions, and, and that's not always a good thing. My name is Ron Cluzet. I'm the director of the uh, North American uh, Evangelism Institute, North American Division Evangelism Institute. That is what Mark Finley founded in 1979 in Chicago that was called Lucy at that time. It was a lay training institute. That became formalized and something that now all of pastors also are trained in. And then we moved from Chicago to... Um, to Andrews University, oh, back in 93, I became the director, I'm only the third director, Mike Finley was the first one, Russell Burrell was the second one, and then I'm the third one, um, just uh, in 2007. Uh, because of that, I have a full teaching, full-time teaching uh, responsibilities there, I'm the equivalent of a, a chair of a department, and then... Um, a lot of field responsibilities. I'm also a field secretary for the division as well. And some of you may recognize me because I just, we just finished a couple of months ago a NET event. How many of you were involved in your church or you have seen the NET meetings? Very few of you. If you still are interested in that, um, all 28 of those presentations are available at the website. The website is prophecysdecoded.com prophecysdecoded.com, and uh, that will stay up for maybe just a little longer. Um, we had a 650 or so churches involved, and um, uh, by the grace of God and our best estimates, uh, about 5,000 people throughout the division were baptized as a result of those meetings, and a lot of people were uh, blessed, a lot of members as well were blessed. And, uh, oh, I could tell you stories, but that's not what you came for. Um, I could tell you wonderful stories of God's intervention. Uh, maybe one. Here's one. Okay, here's one. All right. Um, if uh, the few of you, most of you did not see this. So the last Sabbath, we, you know, we have been baptizing people for the last two weeks. We had about 150 people where we were that made decisions for baptism, you know, in the live area there in, in Nashville. Um, but uh, the last Sabbath, 
One of those people baptized were a young couple, one uh, Matt, 25 years old, and Emily, about 23. Uh, They had been living together for probably 10 years, that long. They had two children. Uh, Matt came from a very clearly dysfunctional family, and so did Emily. Matt was deep into drugs and uh, selling drugs, and he had been in trouble with a with the police, and Emily had, you know, his mother, her mother, was dying of alcohol. In fact, we had prayer for her. She asked for prayer. She says, those people, you're going to those meetings, and it's changing your life. Would you ask those people to come and pray for me? She's dying uh, with cancer. And, uh, no, it, yeah, it, it, that is related to alcohol, actually. And, um, anyway, they, to make a long story short, they really came full circle. Matt, I... We had an intervention, uh, demonic intervention for him at one point. He had been messing with that as well, and it's all related to the drugs and all of that. And the Lord really freed him. One of the things that my last parting words to him after we had prayer is said, look, the devil is going to try to come back at you because he knows he has had a secure home with you. Um, so when you sense that that might be happening, uh, go to the Word of God. This is what we have done. Go to the Word of God and read again from Psalm 37 and just read through the Word of God. But, but then say to yourself, throughout the day, say to yourself, uh, I belong to Jesus. And say not that, don't just think it. Say it and say it if, for anybody to hear it. I belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. I saw him two days later. This was a Thursday. I saw him two days later. And he said, man, I've been saying I belong to Jesus for two days straight. Two days straight. And his face was totally changed. Totally different. You could see that somebody really belonged to Jesus now. And as a result of that, I had explored. You know, they hadn't even thought about the idea of getting married. You know, a lot of people don't, you know, they don't think it's necessary anymore to do that. I mean, we encounter that in evangelism all the time now. Um, And so I suggested that. Uh, a couple of days before, and I, you know, and he said, "Well, actually, I'm not interested in getting married." You know, we didn't say anything about, you know, what if you really want to follow the Lord Jesus, you should get married, uh, you know, with the blessing of God. And uh, but he wasn't thinking about any of that yet. He hadn't come to that point. Uh, and so he says, "Actually, I, you know, I don't think." I, and he said that in front of Emily, which was not a nice thing to say. You know, I, I don't think it's a good idea to get married. And, and you could see her kind of downcast about that, you know. But two days later, after he, sees, he keeps saying to himself, I belong to Jesus, all of a sudden he had the bright idea that it would be a good thing to get married. <laughs> so, on the last Sabbath, uh, they're getting ready to be baptized. This is all on live television through direct TV. You know, thousands and thousands of people are watching this live. We had a number of baptisms before, and then we had Matt and Emily, but their, their baptismal robes are not blue, which is what we had everybody wear. They're white, okay? They're white. And right before they're baptized, the pastor turns to me, and then I introduce them as people who are going to get married. And sure enough, we marry them, and I do the vows. I forgot to ask them to kiss the bride, so the pastor did that later, and um, so they, I pronounce them as man and wife, 
you know, and in Tennessee, that's the good thing. Tennessee, you don't, the laws are not as strict. I used to be a resident of Tennessee, and I got a number of people married then, but I knew that I could come as a resident of Michigan to do that in Tennessee. And so, got them married, got them baptized, they, he kissed the bride, everybody saw that, not a dry eye, you know, in the place. Two days later, Three days later, I get an email somehow, because some people just are very determined to find you. So, somehow I get an email from a DirecTV viewer from deep down in the bayou in Louisiana. And uh, she says, she gives me a long story about how she's been watching Process Decoded. She has no contact with any Adventist whatsoever, no Adventist church whatsoever. She became convicted about the Sabbath. She and her partner of 19 years, here's another case, right? A partner of 19 years, now they're keeping the Sabbath. They, they're accepting everything the Bible says. They're so excited about this. And then she says, and then we watched that couple get married, and we said, this is exactly what we need to do. So, you tell us where to find you, she said. We will travel anywhere in the United States to meet you so you can marry us and baptize us to be members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And um, so, I, I said, you know, it might be a little hard to find me, but it, you know, I put, it, I put her in contact with a local pastor about an hour away, and he really sees the rains and... Immediately, I said, you know, you need to visit this person within a day day or two. So he called, you know, keep me updated, call her up, met with her. She attended the church. They were excited about it, and so they're planning for their baptism and marriage, too. So that's the one story, okay? Just one story. That's all I have time for. But anyway, you can can check those things out still in processdecoded.com. And... uh, you know how, you know the statement Ellen White said in, regarding 1888, she said that that was the happiest day of my life, happiest year of my life. Well, 2011 has been the happiest year of my life as far as ministry is concerned because we were severely challenged and, um, and we had to grow in many ways in a lot of work. You know, wrote two books and three actually with a manual, two books and a manual, an evangelism manual. Uh, worked a lot of things, but we saw the evidence of God's power and grace every step of the way, in major ways. And, uh, you know, when I read Gospel Workers 519, and I read, Ellen White says that people in heaven will come to you, people who you may not even remember, will come to you and say, thank you, I am in part here because of what you did one day for me, you opened the Word of God for me, or you visited me when I most needed it, or you gave me this or that. It's a beautiful story. You can read that, Gospel Workers 5.19, the last chapter. Read the whole last chapter. And I am sure that I will see, by God's grace, hundreds and thousands of people from this year come and say, you know, Dr. Cluzet, we saw you, and God used you to lead us to God. And now we belong to Him because of that. Well, that's a story that all of us will share one, at one point or another. And, um, and so I'm, I'm very, I, I feel very privileged that the North American Division um, 
allowed us to do that. So, the subject today is Holy Spirit power for last day events. And if you weren't here for the first two sessions uh, earlier, I think that you can get the DVDs or whatever it is. No, not the DVDs, but the, the CDs for that. Uh, just a couple of things. Uh, yeah, questions and answers, because I took a little time on that. We'll, we'll probably wait until we'll have a little bre- break. And since uh, a number of you weren't here last week, I mean yesterday, um, you may have new questions about that. So uh, we'll wait on that. Just wanted to let you know about the book. A lot of what uh, is talked about these, these three modules are in this book that was just published by Pacific Press in April. And a lot of churches are using this book for renewals. And small groups are using that because it has every chapter has a section for questions, for reflection, a small group uh, interaction. Uh, a lot of people I, I've heard are using that. Pacific Press says this is the best book on the Holy Spirit the Adventist Church has ever published. And that's nothing to me. I've been, I've been privileged to study this for about 22 years now at some depth. And uh, if it wasn't for the net meetings, I probably wouldn't have had the gumption to write it, to be honest with you. You know, I tend to be a little perfectionist, and so I have 18 books of some form or another in my computer, but I've never written one of them. I've edited some books, and I've written a number of articles, because it takes me a long time to write, and to write it, you know, I'm not, I'm not. My son, one of my sons, is a very good writer. I'm not a very good writer. I have to really work at it. You know, I have to really work at it. Well, six weeks, that's all it took to write that book. Six weeks in a very substantive book that, will t- that is a very comprehensive work on the Holy Spirit, on the work of the Holy Spirit, on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, on, on the history in the Adventist church about the Holy Spirit, on a, a lot of information there. It's a, it's, a, it's a meaty book. So we have a few copies of that. And uh, afterwards, if you want to, uh, you can have that as well. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Well, let's, let's sing a song, you know. Let's sing a song. I don't have a song up there, but let's sing a song. Uh, Spirit of the Living God, you know that one, don't you? Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Break me, melt me, mold me and lead me, fill me. Spirit of the living God, Fall afresh on me. Father in heaven, thank you for another day. You have purchased each one of these days for us. None of us are entitled to live another moment except by your grace. So this day, this day, we wish 
to yield ourselves to you this day we wish to know you to walk with you to hear your voice this day we desire to come closer to you than yesterday so may your spirit use these couple of hours to nudge us closer to Jesus and to help us understand His purposes to teach us as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. How many of you know, have heard of the Ian Giller? Anybody? That's uh, pretty much what I expected. Actually, I expected maybe a half dozen hands. Here's a story, all right? A very fascinating story. <clears throat> He's a former pastor, Seventh-day Adventist pastor, Desert Valley Church in Arizona. He, now, that's a sizable church. A, um, a good Adventist pastor, but in a missionary. He was a missionary. He was from Australia. Uh, an evangelist. He was a, comprom- a, a, a departmental leader. But he was always intrigued by healing ministries. Hmm? Uh, so one day he decided to attend a Benny Hinn healing service. And that meeting was ra- radically impacted him. To the point that his daughter, who had been a, kind of disenfranchised from the church, was born again and his granddaughter was healed. Now, if you, if you go to a meeting like that and things like that happen, that would leave quite an impression on you, wouldn't it? That's what happened. So he began a practicing a healing ministry himself. And he says that in the next few years, he was used to heal about 30 people. And then he received what he calls the gift of prophecy. And so he was able to understand God's messages to his people. On October 22nd, interesting day, 1994, he was at another Hens meeting. And now he says, the Lord gave me a baptism of fire, which is very typical Pentecostal language for the baptism of the Spirit, you know, and speaking tongues, etc., He describes it this way, fire rolled through my body for two and a half hours. I could not focus on the worship, the preaching, nor the healings. I was immersed in fire, lost to everything around me. Pastor Hinn even spoke a word of knowledge about the fire on someone in the congregation. This is what he experienced. He says, I remember trying to walk down the aisle quietly, sobbing, when Pastor Hinn called for those who have been healed or who had fire all through their bodies to come forward, I could scarcely walk. My wife had to hold me up. Now, this is, this is true. This is, there's no reason to disbelieve what he is describing. And this happens to thousands of people in the world every day. You have to understand that there are 600, at least 600 million uh, Pentecostals and Charismatics. Two years later, 
In the spring of 1996, at the Airport Vineyard Christian Fellowship, that's the site of the famous Toronto Blessing, I'll explain that in a minute, he was singled out from a crowd of 2,500. These were 2,500 ministers, by the way. As one who had become a prophet of the Lord. The, the fellow that was in the pulpit said, you are the one. 2,500 ministers. By the way, the Airport Vineyard Christian Fellowship became famous from 94 on. Why? Because that is the place of the Toronto Blessing. That was a fairly evangelical church that one time had a guest speaker, a Pentecostal guest speaker, and people just went just bonkers about everything. And uh, they started rolling on the floor. They had uncontrollable shaking, a holy laughter, quote-unquote, barking, chirping, clucking in the spirit, which is very typical behavior in a lot of Pentecostal meetings. Okay? Um, so this was a meeting right there. By the way, just to let you know, there have been three waves in Pentecostalism that are very significant, that, that helps us frame how that has worked in the last hundred years. This is an amazing phenomenon because Pentecostalism has been with us only for basically 100 years. Uh, in the span of Christian history, that's a very short span. And yet, it has had immense um, an immense impact in the Christian church. One out of three Christians today is a Pentecostal or Charismatic. One out of three. So, the first wave is 1901. That's the birth of the, of the Pentecostal movement. The classical Pentecostal movement actually took place exactly on January 1 of 1901. And that's a fascinating story I won't get into. There was, you know, speaking in tongues and miracles, giving, you know, and that gave way to about 22, eventually 22 denominations that are called part of the Pentecostal uh, classical Pentecostal denominations. The Assembly of God, for instance, is one of the, is the largest and is, is, is one of them. The second wave, however, took place in the spring of, nine, of 1960. I think it was the spring. Can't quite remember. But it was in Van Nuys, California, with an, with an Episcopal minister. And he's written a book about it called Nine O'Clock in the Morning. That's the day when he began to speak in tongues as, a, as an Episcopal minister, a, a bishop, all right? So... This now is starting to take place in mainline Christian churches. What are those? Mainline Christian churches are Lutheran, uh, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, um, Episcopalian, Congregationalist. In other words, the non-evangelical ones. Those are called mainline. Those churches haven't been growing for the last 60 years. For the last 60 years in America, they have been losing membership, all right, from about this same time. But now a number of them, it's called the charismatic renewal, and that, a number of them have been experiencing that, and a lot of people are experiencing that. And if there's been any quote-unquote growth, has been thanks to this phenomenon in those mainline churches. The third wave took place in the 80s. That was just 30 years ago. And that's the speaking in tongues again, and the miracles, but now with a new group of people, the evangelicals. By the way, the mainline Christian churches includes the Catholic churches too, in that sense. That's not typically what we can, you know, Catholics are not typically in, uh, 
grouped in the mainline churches, but the Catholics also began experiencing this charismatic phenomenon in the 60s. So in the 80s, this begins among the evangelicals. And, but the evangelicals are much more biblical than the rest of the Christian groups, such as Catholics or mainline churches. Therefore, they have a stronger biblical background. And because of that, they know instinctively, they know that the speaking in tongues is not quite something the Bible teaches should happen in worship services, for instance, and, you know, gibberish and glossolalia, that, that's not biblical. They know that better than any of the rest of them, right? So what happens in a lot of evangelicals is that that doesn't happen in the church, in, the, in public, it happens in private. And you'd be astonished, some of the stuff that I read and the circles I function because of scholarship and, and the academy you would be astonished to learn how many scholars nowadays are turning charismatic, but, but they're not doing that in public. It is happening in private. They speak in tongues in their worship services, in their private devotions, but they don't do that in a place like this, for instance. That's, called, those are, that's the third wave of the charismatic movement. A hundred years over 600 million adherents. That's astonishing. You know how astonishing that is? This, this ought to sober us up. The growth rate of the charismatic movement is faster than at the early church in the first century. Now that I got your attention, let's go back to Ian Giller. In September of 96, he attended a house of prayer conference filled with charismatics and charismatic leaders. One of the speakers prophesied that Giller would receive new truth for this hour, end quote. New truth for this hour. What would that be? September 19, the Lord told him, this is a wedding between charismatics and evangelicals. Every wedding is made by a third party. You, you, young Giller, Adventist minister, are the third party. Since early this century, the adversary has focused on keeping the spirit and the truth separate. These days are over. I am putting the spirit and the truth together in my church. This is what supposedly God told this prophet who told Giller. I am putting the spirit and the truth together in my church. The evangelicals with the gospel are to join the charismatics and the spirit. I seek worshipers who will worship me in spirit and in truth, go down and announce this marriage to this church, this city, and this nation. Why an Adventist pastor? He gave the prophecy and the church erupted in praise and applause. They thought this was the greatest news that Jesus had. And he left the, as he left the meeting, uh, Giller says, the Lord spent 40 minutes giving me specific details about the role he wants the Seventh-day Adventist Church and its leadership to play in the forthcoming marriage. Isn't that interesting? In other words, the spirit and the truth has been separate, and that's in many ways true. Um, we have to unite this. And we're going to use the Adventists to do that. 
You're going to have, we're going to use enlightened Adventists to do that. Why? Because the Adventists know about truth. But as soon as they get the Spirit, they're going to get it. And they're going to bridge the gap. Hmm? That's what's coming. How could a dedicated Seventh-day Adventist pastor be so deceived? Beware. This is not a dummy. This is not an ignoramus. This is not somebody who has sold his soul to Satan. What's happening here is experience overrides just about anything unless you determine in your mind that something else will be more real than how you feel in what you feel. Hank Hanegraaff, this is a this is a radio talk show host, you know, a leader in the evangelical community, and and this is happening also outside of the church that they're discovering that there's some serious there are some problems with this. Christianity is undergoing a paradigm shift of major proportions, shift from faith to feelings, from fact to fantasy, from reason to esoteric revelation. This paradigm shift is what I call the counterfeit revival. Churches on every continent are now inviting their people to experience God in a brand new way. Sardonic laughter, spasmodic jerks, signs and wonders, super apostles and prophets, and people being slain in the Spirit are pointed to as empirical evidence of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. The form and function of the church is being so radically rearranged that even the secular world has taken note. And notice now, and you can see, you can see, you can start anticipating what the issues will be here in the last days. You find a secular world, a secular world that doesn't know anything about the Bible, or very little, or what they know about the Bible is what they have learned in movies like, uh, like uh, the Da Vinci Code. All right. Um, who are they going to believe? Some fire and brimstone Calvinist preacher? Oh, they don't want, they're, they're done with him. Who are they going to believe? They're going to believe some priest in, in a boring liturgical service in, in, in you know, Orthodox church or, or Catholic church? Ah, who needs that? The only people they can possibly believe are people who can show something, who can make you feel something, right? Stay tuned. Shortly after the 1844, there, were, there was some fanaticism um, and, uh, among the Adventists, and, but they had to learn a lot, and God allowed some of that to take place without a lot of rebuke. He was just shaping Ellen White at that time, and she was sometimes, um, sometimes close to that, but didn't know what to do with it. Now, you've got to remember that the Methodists in the 1850s were people who, uh, who were also prone to a number of charismatic type of... Uh, they, they, they were very 
intense about what Wesley taught the, the witness of the Spirit was. And sometimes they would take it to excess. And of course, Ellen White was, was, came from that background, except that she was really deeply steeped in Scripture. But she stood on the, on the sidelines. She was really young, and she didn't get a lot of messages from the Lord about that. Later, she started getting some messages about that. Later, two, three, four, five years later. And then much later, she really got some clear messages about it. Here's one of them early on. I saw that, the, that we should strive at times to be free from unhealthy and unnecessary excitement. I saw that there was greater, a great danger, great danger of leaving the Word of God and resting down and trusting in exercise. This is really good insight, okay? I saw that this is, this, she's 22 years old. She's 22 years old and she's already picking up on the fact that, you know what? There's just not as much word in this. That probably is not a good thing. So that, she says that. I saw that God had moved by His Spirit upon your company. She's writing to particular case, in a particular case. In some of their exercises, in their promptings. But I saw danger ahead. So what is she saying? She's saying that not, not everything that is exercise and excitement is satanic. She's saying, yeah, I saw God working through some of that, but I saw danger ahead. And the danger ahead has to do with this concept, leaving the Word of God and resting down and trusting the exercises. The exercises is, is a 19th century term um, dealing with the barking and clucking in the spirit, those, those kinds of things, all right? Um, however, she did also say much later in her life, when she had a lot more experience and, and understanding, she said the Holy Spirit of God alone, the Holy Spirit of God alone can create a healthy enthusiasm. So enthusiasm is not evidence of satanic activity. But the Holy Spirit alone can create a healthy enthusiasm. Let God work and let the human agent walk softly before Him, watching, waiting, praying. In other words, you've got to be alert. You've got to be attentive to what's happening here. Looking unto Jesus. You've got to keep your eyes riveted on Him every moment, led and controlled by the precious Spirit, which is light and life. In, uh, here's what happens. I, you know, it's in the book... I read four chapters this morning, and I said, this book is good. <laughs> I know that sounds terribly self-serving, but to me, you know, I look back and I say, wow, six weeks. Anyway, the, I wish you could read uh, a lot of the details about this. The Adventist Church in the 1890s, as a result of the of the Righteousness by Faith movement that didn't really didn't get to be a movement then, except for a few people like Alan White and Wagners and Jones and a few others who really caught on to that. There were there were revivals in the Adventist Church, particularly in ninety one and ninety three, there was a ninety five too. Uh, some good revivals. But as a result of that, people started getting more interested in studying the Holy Spirit. Ellen White began to write about the Holy Spirit only for the first time. For the first time, she began to switch the preposition from the Holy Spirit being an it to a he. She didn't even understand that until the mid-90s, 1890s. And, uh, and so the, 
the personal work of the Holy Spirit. Result of that, Ballinger, if Ballinger, you, you've heard of him, who, who left the church, uh, but at that time he was very much in the church. He was a key preacher and leader, uh, revivalist in the church. He was used by the General Conference. He was, the General Conference asked him to hold revival meetings all throughout the Americas and even in Europe, in, in, British, in British Island. And um, the Holy Ghost movement took place in 1899. Now, there were some excesses, there were some dangers. When you really study that and when you look back and say, mm, some of the things he's saying are a little dangerous here. Most of what he's saying is right on. But there are some things that, mm, I don't know about it. Well, that's what happens when unbalanced minds take a hold of something that is not purely true. And so what happened is that in Indiana, uh, S.S. Davis, and, uh, the, the president and one of the evangelists really got hold of this. He had written a book on it and so forth. And they went further out. They really went out there. Now this is 1899. This is still two years from the birth, the official birth of the charismatic movement. Of course, the holiness movement had already been going on in the last part of the 19th century. What's that? The holiness movement is what followed after Wesleyanism. John Fletcher and other theologians who pushed it through the experience part of it really put more emphasis on that. John Wesley never got into those things. John Wesley's theology is quite right on. But uh, others who followed pushed it through a little bit more. In the, the um, what is the... There were several expressions. Anyway, the, the holiness movement really yearned for an experiential, responsive Christianity. So it was in the water already, if you will. You know, it was, it was out there. And Pentecostalism was only, it was only a matter of time before that would really break through in an official, classical way, such as speaking in tongues and the miracles and the power and all of that that followed through. Well, the Holy Flesh movement was our charismatic experience in the history of the Adventist church. And it was so severe that uh, in the, there was a, a camp meeting in, in the year 1900 that really went out of hand. And witnesses wrote about it. And they wrote to Ellen White. Ellen White came back from Australia in large part to two major reasons. One is because the church leadership needed to be reorganized and that's what happened in 1901. But the main, another big factor was this problem. She came back. God said, you get a big, big, get a big, better get back out there because Pentecostalism was, was on the verge of taking place in the Adventist church. And so, anyway, long story short, they, they cut that down. But some of the things that she said about it, mere noise and shouting are evidence of justification or of the descent of the Holy Spirit, um, are not evidence. I'm sorry, the word not is behind the, the, the picture there. Um, are not evidence of sanctification. I just have to make sure. Let's check that out. How about that? There it is. Are no evidence of justification, of sanctification rather, which was the emphasis by the Methodists, 
or of the descent of the Holy Spirit. Excitement is not favorable to growth and grace, to true purity and sanctification of the Spirit. Then she refers to the, what happened at the camp meeting. The things you have described as taking place in Indiana, the Lord has shown me would take place just before the close of probation. So it's coming. Every uncouth thing will be demonstrated. There will be shouting with drums, music, and dancing. The senses of rational beings will become so confused that they cannot be trusted to make right decisions. And this is called the moving of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit never reveals itself in such methods, in such a bedlam of noise. This is an invention of Satan to cover up his ingenious methods for making of none effect the pure, sincere, elevating, ennobling, sanctifying truth for this time. A bedlam of noise Noise shocks the senses and perverts that which, if conducted aright, might be a blessing. The powers of satanic agencies blend with the din and noise to have a carnival. And this is termed the Holy Spirit's working. Selected Messages, Volume 2, pages, well, the whole 30s there, but particularly 32, 35, 36, deals with, um, with that. So, that was stamped out. But the devil has a long memory and he knows what has worked in the past and even though he might, he might be on a retreat on a given subject, uh, he knows that given certain uh, situations, he can come back again with that kind of thing. Remember Ellen White saying, I saw danger ahead. She said that in 1894... And she said that not only in the context of what might have happened in Indiana, but in the context of the end of probation. Now, that's, that's more where we live today, okay? The charismatic movement is the fastest growing group in the history of Christianity. Faster than the early church. In 100 years, 600 million adherents. I mean, nothing comes even close to that growth rate. Most of Latin American Christianity today is charismatic. Most of African Christianity today is charismatic. Much of what's happening in Southeast Asia is becoming charismatic. Whatever Christian inroads in India are now um, uh, on the, on the cusp of being charismatic. Uh, much of what is left of Christianity in uh, the Western world is looking at charismatic tendencies with great favor. Why? For logical reasons. In Europe, religion means old, empty cathedrals that fit a thousand people, but have six old ladies come to Mass. Clearly a dead church. So if there's, I mean, there's nothing else. They, they, they call themselves post-modern post and post-religion and post-Christian and all that. In America, much more solidly Protestant, we have much deeper roots than, than Europe does. We have not been damaged by the Catholicism of hundreds and hundreds of years. In Europe, we have, you know, Protestants, you know, the scriptures, that, that's been a great benefit. But, 
We're finding more and more people that are Christian that do not read the Bible anymore. I find a lot of Adventists that don't read the Bible anymore. And because of that, what happens? When you do not read the Bible, when you do not know God personally at, at, at an at, at a intellectually stimulating level, you seek for other handles. You know that somehow you need to have a relationship with God, that you need to walk with God, but it becomes a lot easier when you are surrounded by the props that make you feel close to God, even though you may not know Him. One of, I teach church growth, one of the classes I teach at the seminary, one of the failures of the church growth movement was articulated even by none other than Bill Hyvels, who has been a, you know, the prima donna of a lot of pastors, including some Adventist pastors from Willow Creek. Now, there's a lot of good things, I mean, a lot of things uh, about Bill Hyvels that I respect. He loves the lost a lot more than a lot of Adventists that I know love the lost. But he's limited in his understanding. He doesn't have some of the basic things that we have enjoyed. He's not part of the remnant church. But he has said that the result of his seeker service concept has brought a lot of secular people to the church. But there is one problem. He took him 20 years to figure it out. What is the problem? They're not changing. They're not changing. In other words, they have a religious veneer now, which before they didn't. But there is no deep transformation. There is no serious walking without. Now, Bill, I believe, and many of these leaders actually do have a serious walk with God, the best they know how. But they have figured, you know, and so they, they, t- they get a little pill of Christianity that makes them feel good. You know, a lot of the singing, a lot of the music, the, 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 the light weight messages and so forth. But they go home and they remain the same way. Now, you tell me if we are not in danger of the same thing in the Adventist church today. I taught at Southern. Southern is, of all the 11 colleges, probably considered, I taught at Southern for 14 years, uh, and I was dean of the school religion there. I hired a number of people there. I saw a lot of students there, some of who are here, my former students. And Southern is probably considered the most conservative uh, of all our schools in America. Even at Southern, over 14 years, I taught a class, you know, Life and Teachings of Jesus, so I got a lot of the 18, 19-year-olds. Uh, and I remember the first few years, those kids came with a very good basic knowledge of Scripture. They came from solid homes. They understood. They knew the stories of the Bible. I could talk at, at a different level with them. They caught on. As the years went by, in just that short time, at Southern, the biblical literacy came down. The last couple, three years, I saw a lot of kids didn't know. I mean, they barely knew who Moses was. What does that say? Well, it says that they're not reading the Bible. They're not, they're not, there's not a solid foundation of Scripture. Therefore, when you do not have that, what do you have? You are ripe for the picking. You are ripe 
to only perceive God sensorily. Again, I said it again, I said it before and I'll say it again. If I can feel God, why would I need to know Him? Yoda Full Gospel Church is the largest church in the world, is in Seoul, Korea. And uh, the amazing thing, these are my own pictures. I went, to, I went to see it, it was at night, that's the only time I had, and they had a choir practice there and so forth. But every night at 10 o'clock, this place is full, 10,000 people praying every night from, six, from 10 to 6 in the morning. Now, there might be a lot of wrong things about it, but how many churches and how many Adventists would be willing to do that? Huh? The membership of that church, Pong Yonggi Cho was the founder and the big force behind it. He retired about a few years ago. Now there's a new leader there. But uh, there's a story that I've heard from several sources. I'm not sure. I cannot ascertain that independently. But I've heard similar stories of other cases where I have been able to ascertain that. That uh, a couple of Adventist pastors one time, 20 years, 25 years ago, went to visit him. You know, basically to discuss, I mean, this, this is an incredibly successful church. You know what the membership is? Over one million. That's the membership of the single congregation. Over one million. They have... 10, 12 services on Sunday. But that's obviously, they can only fit, what, 100,000 people at the most, uh, or 80,000 people, if everybody, you know, filled that for, to, to the max every time. So that's a short percentage compared to a million. Why? Well, what happens is that they have hundreds of small groups. Now, that's the that's a, that's a thing that the Spirit of Prophecy recommended, and that's the thing that we find in the, in the New Testament church, which is not happening very well in the Adventist church, but it certainly is happening here, right? And so they have leaders there, and so it, it, that's the growth. That's the growth. Well, these Adventist pastors purportedly asked him, you know, what's, what's, you know, wow, how does that happen? And the report is he took out two books from his library written by Ellen White. The book Evangelism and the book Gospel Workers. And he says, if you guys were to read this, maybe you would find some of the same success. Now, that may be true or may not be. It could, it's, it's, it's very possible it is true, that the story is true. Because the principles are there. The principles are there. But, of course, there's a problem with this, that, uh, that this is a charismatic church. In, 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 that's one of the big issues. Um, there's other things that are very good about it. But it's a charismatic church which allows for the, I mean, that's the, the draw for the growth. There are three historical developments that permanently change the nature of Christianity. I want you to think uh, in this, this way, historically. This framing things helps me in my thinking. Here it is. Maybe it helps you too. In the 6th century, the settlement of papal Rome changed Christianity forever. That's when, when the papal seat really got established and the power of Rome really got undisputed. It was no longer disputed. It settled, 538, you know. 
The second major historical development that permanently changed the Christian church was in the 6th century, the birth of the Protestant Reformation, the recovery of sola scriptura. That permanently changed Christianity. But one a third development that is equally as strong and big, which most people do not keep in mind, is what happened in the 20th century, the rise of the charismatic movement. That permanently changed Christianity, as I mentioned earlier. And this is the, this is the life, this is the world in which we live today. This is the Christian world in which we live today. In terms of the, the charismatic movement, that movement evolved in America because of the holiness movement of the last second half of the 19th century, which emphasized, the emphasis was on sanctification. That's a, that's a proper emphasis. Why? Because that is a reaction to the old Calvinist emphasis of forensic justification. Am I talking googly goog to some? Uh, forensic justification, what, that's what Luther brought about. That said, justify, I'm justified in Christ because he said so, period. Forensic is a legal term. In other words, regardless of how we feel, God has made us right. And Romans 5 tells us all about it. And that was a necessary corrective to whole, the whole understanding from Catholicism to Catholicism to that understanding. However, the Reform movement, that's after Calvin, you know, Calvin sort of built up on Luther and sight, you know, sightline. Anyway, they reformed churches under Calvin. Calvinism was so steeped in forensic justification that the only emphasis in salvation was justification. To the point that the Calvinists would go so far saying that God has pre-elect, pre-decided whom he was going to choose. That's predestination, right? And the tulip, and some of you who are pastors, you understand some of this stuff better. Anyway, or without further explanation. The point here is that emphasis on sanctification is good, except that in the holiness movement, the tendency was instant sanctification. What's instant sanctification? Instant sanctification is the opposite of what Ellen White says sanctification is. Sanctification, she says, quote-unquote, is the work of how? A lifetime. Instant sanctification is what came out of the, old, the, the, the former Wesleyans in the Nazarenes who wanted perfection now. And when you really want to be sanctified, and when you want to be just like Jesus now, I mean, I don't want to wait 30 years. I don't want this slow, you know, this slow fire that cooks it deeply. I don't want that. I want the instant microwavable Christianity, right? When you want that, you become subject, immediately subject to all kinds of deceits in the process. Because you are much more vulnerable to wanting to see evidence. Give me some evidence, outside external evidence, and that will make me believe that things are changed. But, but if you have walked with the Lord any time, you know that change often is slow. And is steady. 
I often say to young people, if you want to be really good in your walk with God, in five years, you've got to start right now. Because it'll take you that long. Now, they don't have that concept, you know, because it's like, you know, when you're young, you know, you can change tomorrow. Right? But those of us who have lived a little longer, we know that that's not true. That doesn't happen that way. So, so the process is slow. Well, this, this was the, the emphasis. That led way to the Pentecostal movement of the first century. And the emphasis was no longer on the witness and on responding, on being like Christ. That was a correct emphasis about sanctification. The process was wrong. But the emphasis was right. The, the, the emphasis here for the Pentecostals is now power. I want power. That's why I, I'm impressed by power when people heal people, when people show the, a, a manifestation of the Spirit of God, when there is casting out of demons, when there is speaking in tongues. Power. In other words, I want to be impressed. I want God to impress me. Let me tell you, that's where everybody in Christianity is headed. Including Seventh-day Adventists. Unless they are really firmly planted here. Why? Because it's a human condition. Even Europeans are going to go for God. You know, Europeans haven't cared about God for five generations. Even Europeans are going to go for God if I can touch Him and feel Him and sense Him. Who couldn't? Who wouldn't? That's a very powerful thing. Huh? That emphasis on powers to cast out demons, to do miracles, to feel good, to be triumphant, to feel like you've been close to God. Been close to God. You know, watch TBN. You know, a lot of that has to do with that. Charismatics say that's the reason why we need the Holy Spirit. We need power. Their theology is based on the book of Acts, but ignores other teachings of Scripture. That's the flaw. Because they, because they, they look at Scripture thinly, not deeply. Huh? And there's a great danger. It's almost worse to have a taste of God only than not to know Him at all. Because if you don't know Him at all, He will make responsible for you to finally and eventually face some reality. But if you think you know Him when you don't know Him, you're no longer open to more of God because you already think you have it. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. Now, now you understand this in better context, right? Because he's talking about the last days. So as, if, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. How could that be possible that you can mislead the elect? Have you ever heard the story? It was told through the voice of prophecy years ago about a, the, the Adventist missionary in Brazil who's, who had a tragedy. His two boys died. He's a well-educated Adventist 
doctor. He was so depressed about the death of his boys, he left the practice. It took a while to come back to it. Finally opened the clinic. The first time he opened the clinic, a spiritualist comes to see him, a, a wonderful man. I lived in Mount Shasta where there's a lot of um, people like that. And they're wonderful people. They actually, they're very smooth and gentle. and Very, I mean, it's eerie. Eerily deceptive. Uh, anyway, a wonderful man who invited him to one of his spiritualist meetings. Now, the Adventist doctor immediately picked it up and says, well, this is not good. But he invited him after the Adventist doctor invited him to a series of Adventist meetings based on prophecy. So he says, I'll go to yours if you come to mine. One time, just one time, just come one time. He shared that with his wife and his wife said, don't even dare. That's the devil behind that. You know that. Oh yeah, honey, but you know, he might come to our, he will come to our meetings if I go there one time. Well, so he decides to go. He goes in late. He sits in the back. You know, he wants to be unnoticed, but so he, he can report to the man that, you know, he was there so he can come to the evangelistic meetings. Halfway through this lecture, his two boys come bounding down the center aisle to meet him. And he's watching this, and he can't believe it. And his mind is saying, I know these are not my boys. But his heart is melted. And he visits with them. And daddy, daddy, and we'll see, and we'll see you tomorrow. He tells his wife, and the wife says, You know those are not our boys. I know. Wow, you should have been there. It was so wonderful to talk with him, to visit with him. It was, I miss him so much. Second night, he was there. Third night, he was there. Fourth night, he was there. To make a long story short, the guy was totally into this. He knew, intellectually, he knew he was, being, he was buying a lie. So he asked for an audience to meet with the head honcho in that whole region, the spiritualists in that area in Brazil, to meet with him. And he had only one question. How do you plan, how do, how you plan to do this? How do you plan to deceive the whole world? And the, and the guy said, you know, by the way, he, he knew the doctor well. He knew everything about his family. Of course, they had never met before. And he said to him, well, uh, if I tell you you cannot share that with anybody. Because, and if you do, you will die in three days. That's as serious as it gets. The man says, tell me, I need to know, I need to know. He tells him, goes home, wants to tell his wife. And she says, don't tell me. Please do not tell me. Because you're messing with Satan. Satan is behind this power. That's, you know, he didn't, he didn't say three days just as an innate threat, it probably will happen. Don't tell me. He says, I know, but I, whatever, I'm, I'm already, you know, he felt really totally like I'm on the other side already. I'm, I'm lost already. So he tells her. Sure enough, three days later, he dies. 
has an accident and dies. Now, how could that happen with a, I mean, an intelligent Seventh-day Adventist who knows clearly the teaching of the Bible regarding the state of the dead? Because experience can be immensely powerful. And I'm not going to tell you what he said. Not because I'm going to die or you're going to die. That was not part of the deal. But, um, but you'll figure it out. What is to come? The Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power. And under the influence of the threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of conscience. I'm reading from the Great Controversy, 588. As spiritualism more closely imitates the nominal Christianity of the day, it has greater power to deceive and ensnare. Through the agency of spiritualism, miracles will be wrought, the sick will be healed, and many undeniable wonders, undeniable Wonders will be performed. That's where we're headed. Okay? And it will be so powerful that it will be impossible to cast that aside. That's why Jesus says, you know, if they say to you, Jesus is in the desert, don't go to see Him. Because if you do, you're going to see Him. You're going to think it is me. But it's not me. Papists, Protestants, and worldlings will alike accept the form of godliness without the power. The power of God, the power of the Spirit. And they will see in this union a grand movement for the conversion of the world and the ushering in of the long-expected millennium. The millennium in the, 18th, in the 19th century concept of the millennium, which is absolute peace, is heaven on earth. Heaven in America, that's what it was really in the 1840s. Peace and prosperity, which the Apostle Paul recalls in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, says when they say that, boom, the whole thing is over. Hmm? So, this is how I, I grafted it. Protestantism, Romanism, and spiritualism. This is going to be the triumvirate of the end. What you have is a false prophet, the beast and the dragon. That's what Revelation clearly describes. Listen to this carefully in Revelation 16. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, this is the unholy trinity, out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out into the kings of the whole world, to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. So, out of the mouth of, you notice that that is three times mentioned for emphasis. What is the biggest thing out of your mouth? We do several things with our mouth. But the most distinctive thing out of our mouth is speech. So what we're talking about is the voice of Scripture. That has been traditionally what Protestantism has stood for. The voice of Scripture. The voice of authority is what Romanism has stood for, and the voice of deception is what spiritualism has stood for. However, when the voice of Scripture becomes, it, 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 this metamorphs to false prophet, what you have is a false 
Scripture, a false interpretation of Scripture, right? This is much better here. Let me see if I can share some of that here in the chapter Babylon Rising. Um, I'm going to read. I'm going to read just a couple pages here. So be patient with me. But this is better said than what I could say. Um, we find in Revelation 16 that everything at the end will culminate in the battle called Armageddon. But what precedes the battle is just as important to understand as the battle itself. And the sixth angel poured out his foal upon the great river of Euphrates. And the water was dried up that they might be prepared for the kings of the east. Jesus, the, kings, the king of kings, is coming. And the political support given to his opposing beast power is coming to a low ebb, symbolized by the drying of the Euphrates. In 539 B.C., when the head of the Medo-Persian army, Cyrus, dried the Euphrates, the life source of the city of Babylon, he was able to take over the city. Satan knows history, and he knows it is now or never. Now, catch, follow me carefully here. Revelation 12 shows he, his failed, Satan's failed attempts to overcome the enemy. He failed to persuade most angels in heaven to turn against their maker. Verses 7 to 9. Next, he fails to destroy the Messiah, in spite of the fact that the kingdom ruling the world at the time was Rome, firmly under his control. Verse 4. Then he failed to drown the woman, God's faithful people, during the 1260 years of apostasy with the, quote, river of coercion he poured out of his mouth. Verses 13 to 16. Last he turns his wrath against the remnant of God, that is you and me today, verse 17. Note one thing, every aggressive attempt is through the use of his mouth. The dragon's use of his mouth. This is everything he's been doing is through his mouth. There is, a, there is a, a consistency here. How is he going to try to overwhelm God's remnant? First, he rebuilds the sea beast once again. The power of Rome, Revelation 13. Next, he forges a lamb-like beast, the legislative power of the United States of America, which, with which he can promote his substitute Sabbath to the world. However, and follow this carefully, the entire demonic religious political structure needed to stamp out the very elect. That's what Jesus said, right? It is not in place until we come to chapter 16. In chapter 13, the pieces are there, but it is not one amalgamated solid unit yet. Not until chapter 16. However... Uh, yeah, the, the time has finally come for the dragon, the, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, along with his reliable sidekick, the beast, to do something big. And nothing is bigger than plain God. See, in chapter 13, that's not quite happening yet. In chapter 16, it is. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, we just read it, the prince of this world now sees he finally has everything in place to be king of this world. Not just a prince anymore, but total domination. The waiting is over. The demonic trinity has finally become one, just as God is one. That's what this trinity is about. Am I going too fast? Okay, this, uh, okay. Who is this unholy trinity? The dragon and Satan. 
particularly through the, his miraculous powers or spiritualism. The beast, of course, is a papal institution. The false prophet is apostate Protestantism. Um, and then I quote uh, what we quoted from Ellen White regarding the three uniting. When this triad showed up before, the, before as the dragon, the, the sea beast, and the lamb-like beast, they were not as much in sync as we see them now to be in Revelation 16. In Revelation 12, the dragon's mouth was ready to devour the, devour the child, when in Revelation 13, the beast's mouth utters blasphemies, and the lamb-like beast used its mouth to speak like a dragon. But in Revelation 16, what came out of each of their mouths was identical for the first time. Spirits of demons like frogs. Now, let's study that for a moment. What are this? What is this, frogs? The frogs remind us of the second plague of ancient Egypt as God sought to deliver His people from bondage and teach the Egyptians the inadequacy of their own gods. A Jewish legend tells of how Egyptian magicians were able to bring forth frogs with the help of demons. That's the context in the story of Exodus. The Egyptian goddess Higit was symbolized by a frog. She was supposed to be a goddess of fertility. Exodus 8 tells us that as a result of the plague, frogs were even in their houses throughout the land of Egypt. No doubt there was religious irony in the fact that the goddess of fertility was seen preventing fertility by occupying beds and bedrooms throughout Egypt. Thoughtful Egyptians couldn't have missed the point. Satan had been able to copy the miracles done by Moses, such as turning sticks into snakes and water into blood. But frogs were the last of Satan's miracles, the maximum extent of his miraculous abilities. And Exodus says that the Lord destroyed all these frogs. Why would Satan want frogs again, since he failed memorably with that stratagem once before? My guess... It's because he, can, he cannot let go of that earlier defeat in Egypt. Remember I said uh, Satan has a long memory. The frogs of Revelation 16 are symbolic. He wants a second chance. And he believes he can make it this time. And since in the ancient Egyptian spiritualism, frogs represented fertility... He will use his unholy offspring to go head to head with God's remnant, the children of the woman. You see the parallels? His children against God's children. But here's an interesting common denominator. The frogs come out of the dragon's mouth, the beast's mouth, the false prophet's mouth. The most identifiable, identifiable characteristic coming out of anyone's mouth is speech. In ancient times, frogs were symbols of deceptive spirits because of their loud but meaningless croaking. And the Jews for the first century of the first century came to associate frogs with charlatans and demonic water spirits. What do we have here? We have an unholy alliance between spiritualists, Romanists, and, and apostate Protestants, the objective of which is to deceive the leaders of the whole world by means of signs or wonders, even miracles of bringing fire down from heaven such as Elijah did. But how could three such disparate religious groups ever come together? 
I mean, think about this. How could Baptists associate with spiritualists? How could Orthodox associate with Charismatics? Certainly not through theology. Their common denominator is not doctrine, but miraculous speech. False speech. Glossolalia in false prophesyings. And the fire from heaven is the supposed, to, is the supposed Holy Ghost fire. That's what's coming. Satan will seek to reverse God's act at the Tower of Babel. He has a long memory. He is peeved. He, got, he was soundly defeated. And he's saying, okay, so you split us up by creating different languages? I'm going to get it back together. I'm going to get that one language together. But it's going to be my language and everybody's going to be speaking it. I'm, going to, I'm working slowly to get that back together. How will we know the true from the false Holy Spirit revival then? Now, we're well aware of uh, false speech in the, in, in the case of glossolalia, you know. Um, but there is a lot more subtle stuff. Listen to what Jesus said. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me who practice lawlessness. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.